If I haven't met you, my name's uh, Nick. I am the lead pastor here, and I'm going to be getting us into God's Word. So you can open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew 28, and we're going to be reading really the last verses of that gospel. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you, or this day and age, you just can simply open up an app on your phone, and uh, there it is. But if you're scrolling Facebook, I may not know it, Jesus knows it. Um, so, we've been in Luke's Gospel for a while, uh, but I'm taking a few uh, weeks out of that just to look at um, a really larger subject of discipleship and kind of cast a vision for what that might look like here at Mercy Hill. Um, and this text in Matthew 28, uh, famously known as the, the Great Commission, kind of sets the, us up with this, this subject. So I wanted to read this, uh, pray, and then... Uh, we'll dive into our time for this morning. So, again, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. It says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Guys, let's pray. Lord, our lives are about so much more than we often realize. We think that coming to you and letting you have say and coming under your rule and reign will hinder our plans, will make things uh, smaller, not greater for us, will kind of be in the background when we want to be the star, but... What we see when we really follow the trajectory of the gospel and the work of the Spirit is that you want to include humanity in a work of cosmic proportion. You want to include fallen image bearers, renewed in Jesus, in this greater mission of of making disciples, this mission of bringing uh, gospel transformation to human hearts and lives, and ultimately, as we read in Romans 8, Romans 8, even to the world. God, we stand amazed that you would include rebels in your cause. We are sorry that we often uh, reduce our lives to something so much smaller. And God, we ask that this morning you would use our time together in your word, considering these things, to bring us back into our purpose, our reason for being, and the great call that you put on the church and your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is now um, part two of what I am planning will be a three-part kind of sermon mini-series uh, entitled, really, 
uh, introducing and multiplying DNA groups. Now, because each sermon is going to build on the previous one and really uh, throw us out, leave us uh, with kind of a call to action and a call to involvement, I did want to real quickly uh, review what I did last week for those of you that weren't here uh, uh, or those of you that maybe were here and already forgot. Um, let me give you briefly a summary of what we did last time. The text we read there in Matthew 28, again, I'm not going to go verse by verse like I typically would. I simply wanted to use that text to set up the larger issue that I want to discuss, namely that of discipleship. What we see in Matthew 28 and what I brought out last time is plainly that those who are Christians, those who are followers of Christ, are called disciples, first and foremost, but then they are called also to be making disciples. Disciples of Jesus are to be busy making disciples of Jesus. So Jesus gathers his disciples to himself and he says, now you go and make disciples. But sadly, one of the things we recognize, I think, is that even though the command is clear here, and even though you've probably heard things like this spoken from pulpits before, um, oftentimes we don't see that sort of thing working out in our lives. Oftentimes we're not uh, disciples of Jesus, busy making disciples of Jesus. We're busy with all manner of other things. Now, it's up to you to kind of consider and pray over whether that's the case for you, and if so, why? But hoping all things uh, for us, one of the reasons I put forward last time as to maybe why uh, we're not busy making disciples of Jesus is actually the fact that we simply don't understand what is involved in such a thing. That yes, maybe Jesus outlines a few steps here like baptizing and then teaching and, and comforts us that he's with us in it. But a lot of times we, we, we maybe try to jump into this sort of thing and it feels too big. What does it even mean to uh, engage others in discipleship, to make disciples, to pursue Christ along with other people and to even call unbelievers into this with us? What does it mean to make disciples? Well, it's into this confusion that I'm hoping to kind of inject these, uh, this vision for uh, DNA groups. Um, it's my attempt really to help us as a church kind of make sense of what do we do with this command, with this grand purpose of, of going off, off into the nations, the neighborhoods, wherever it may be, and making disciples. What do we do with that? We have to try to do something with it. So that's what I am uh, attempting to do with these three sermons. My aim here is really to provide um, an orienting vision and a supporting structure that might help us in our discipleship to Jesus and promote what I would call or what others have called a culture of discipleship here at Mercy Hill. What I want more than anything for our church is that it would be a normal thing for us to be meaningfully engaged in each other's lives, pursuing Christ together, and then even, as I've said, calling unbelievers to join us in the journey, engaging their questions, and, 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 and making disciples. I would love for that to be the sort of culture that we have here, and I'm putting DNA groups forward as, as one way of trying to get at that. And I, I uh, would clarify that, that this is not uh, the only way, but it is 
a way. It is one way, and I hope you find uh, what I put forward by the end of all this uh, helpful and something that you can use. Now, the last time I spent uh, pretty much the majority of our time looking at the biblical theological background to this idea of DNA groups and discipleship, I used, I riffed on that idea of DNA and how it's the carrier of, of, of genetic information transferred from our parents. It's the reason why we look like uh, our, our parents. It's the reason why we bear their image. That's what DNA kind of is. And one of the things I showed you in the scriptures, I wanted to locate DNA groups uh, in the as far as the biblical background is concerned, here's, here's what we talked about. We talked about how discipleship to Jesus has as its end, ultimate end, conformity to his image. That after following alongside or following behind Jesus, the goal in all of this is that we would actually start to look like him. In other words, that we would have something of his DNA, of our father's DNA. And I ran us through, I mean, you remember creation. We were created in the what? The image of God, our father. But in the fall, we marred that image. And then in, in, in the coming of Christ and with uh, uh, the accomplishment of redemption there at the cross, we are now being renewed in that image day by day as we follow after, follow behind Him. So the ultimate goal in discipleship is conformity to the image of Jesus. That's the point. That's what he's after in yours and my life. That's what making disciples means. It means making people look like Jesus by getting them connected, reconnected with their father's DNA, the one who created them and now wants to redeem them in Jesus. Now, DNA groups as a title, calling these groups DNA groups, are helpful for two reasons in particular. One... It keeps before us the end goal of discipleship. So if these are kind of the, our approach to discipleship here at, at Mercy Hill, uh, one thing that's helpful about calling them DNA groups is that it keeps before us the reality that the goal is image renewal. The goal is to get Jesus at the DNA level so that my inner being is transformed and I start to look more like him in my life. If that's not happening, then, then discipleship isn't happening. Something's gone awry. So calling them DNA groups keeps the end goal before us. Uh, but second reason why it's helpful, I think, is that uh, this, well, calling them DNA groups not only keeps the end goal before us, it also outlines the steps involved in getting there. And this is where we did this last week. DNA does no longer stand for, I don't even know it again, you said it, D deoxyribonucleic acid. No, forget that. That was for biology. Now it stands for discovering, nurturing, and applying Christ. Because those are the basic steps that I'm going to outline now for us today. Those are the basic steps involved in kind of conforming to his image. What it means to be his disciple. What it means to start to get to that image renewal place where we're looking more like him. Discovering him, nurturing him, applying Him in our lives. Let me locate these three steps within our larger definition of um, DNA groups. And then really all I'm going to do today is unpack this definition bit by bit. So again, it is a bit different than what I normally do. Usually I'm just taking uh, um, a verse or text of Scripture verse by verse and kind of going through it bit by bit. This morning I'm going to try to actually expound this definition of DNA groups for us. But here it is. DNA groups are smaller groups of committed people who meet on a consistent basis to discover, 
nurture, and apply Christ together until He is all in all. I'm going to unpack that, and as I go, each little bit that I take, I'm going to try to show you how what we're doing here is ultimately rooted, grounded, uh, governed by uh, Jesus' own disciple-making ministry and model. Okay? That's all I'm going to do with you this morning. Sounds simple enough, but I'll find a way to make it complicated, I'm sure. Uh, unpacking the definition then. Let me begin by um, looking at those three key words that kind of form uh, the basis for our acronym DNA. Uh, DNA groups are smaller groups of committed people who meet on a consistent basis to discover, nurture, and apply. Discover, nurture, and apply. Um, As we look at these one by one, it may be helpful for you to imagine us going on a journey, if you will, from your head to your heart to your hand. Discover, nurture, apply. Uh, You'll see what I mean, I hope, as we go. So discovering Christ simply means that we are coming to see more of Him. That there is a really an, a, almost like an intellectual component to the Christian faith where we need to learn certain truths about Him. We need to see more about you know, what, what his, his work was on the cross and what it accomplished. We need to hear His words, His promises. We need to watch Him live life. We need to learn. Who is our God? What does He say? What does He do? We need to kind of uh, uncover the riches of the Father's love for us in Jesus. Like Paul would kind of say, man, the breadth, the width, the height, the depth. We kind of need to to uncover some of that. We need to discover uh, some of these things. Press in and learn about who our God is, what He has said, what He has done. We get knowledge of Him, in other words, in our heads. We get some sort of knowledge of Him. We, 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 we learn about Him. That's this idea of discovery. Um, and the interesting thing, when you really think about it, is that discipleship to Jesus is essentially an expedition of discovery. I mean, you think of those guys, like back in the day, right? Maybe people are still doing this today. Perhaps the new frontier is space, right? But back in the day, it was like guys that would come off into the you know, wilderness, and they'd be going and discovering new places, new things. Well, I had no idea this waterfall was there. I had no idea this mountain was there. What are we going to name it? What are we going to do with it, right? That's the sort of thing discipleship to Jesus is actually like. It's, it's, this, it's this kind of endless expedition of discovery where we will not stop uncovering the riches of God's glory as revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus. Not now, not ever, not, not on this earth, nor for eternity to come. You realize that. If God is infinite, if God is eternal, what we will find is that we will not be able to plumb the depths of His glory. Or the heights of His love. We, we will not. We will find ourselves constantly learning, constantly discovering more and more about Jesus, about the heart of our Father and what He's done, who He is. That's discovering Him, obviously. That's the sort of thing that happens now in the reading of Scripture, the preaching of His Word. Um, all of you guys, in one way or another, if in fact you are in this room, disciples of Jesus, well, it happened because you started to learn things about Him. You had people in your life that opened up the Scriptures, opened up their mouths, and started to share about this one and what He has done and said. That's where it began. 
Now, nurturing Christ. Nurturing Christ takes the things discovered about Him and attempts to draw it all down into our hearts. Uh, We're not satisfied merely knowing truths about Him up here. We actually want to relate to Jesus, trust Him, love Him, worship Him with all of our hearts. You recognize uh, that there is a big difference. Maybe if you're new in the faith, you don't see this yet. If you've uh, been a disciple of Christ for any amount of time at all, you have recognized, I think, that there is often a big disconnect between your head and your heart. That you can learn a lot of things about Him and yet it might not move you, influence you, change you because it hasn't gotten here. And so this place of, of nurturing Christ is where we repent. We actually do repentance. We, we, I know it's not a popular word nowadays if it ever was. But we repent of our idolatries. We repent of our waywardness. We repent of, of, of our false alliances and we reroute ourselves in Jesus. What He's revealed, what He's accomplished, who He says we are. Who He says we're to be and who He's making us to be. We reroute ourselves there. That's the idea of nurturing Christ in our hearts. Taking stuff from the head and wrestling through repentance and faith and prayer. God, get that in my heart. Jesus, help me trust and rest in you here. Um, you might think of that father in Mark nine twenty four. He exemplifies exactly what I'm talking about, where man, he's needs, he needs his kid to be healed by, by Jesus, and he cries out, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. That's the place of nurture. I know you can, but help me to know that you can. I believe, but help me with the fact that I I struggle to believe. See that? Now, as a quick side note, I I know I just said a moment ago that um, discipleship to Jesus is essentially going to be this endless expedition of discovery. And it's going to be riveting and amazing throughout eternity. And we'll just see more and more of it. Um, I know I just said that. But if I were to be honest with you, I think that the biggest problem, the biggest issue in our discipleship usually is not a discovery issue. It's actually here with this idea of nurture. Um, Maybe when you're new to the faith, certainly when you're new to the faith, there are things that you need to learn. And there are going to be, I mean, I remember countless things that one verse changed my life because I discovered grace in a way I didn't before. Or I discovered the sovereign care of God in a way that I didn't before. And we need to see those things. And especially in the beginning of our walk with Jesus as we're just voracious in the Word and we're learning about Him, we come to see this stuff. And that's important. But... After time, here's what I find. Nurture is the big issue. You've got guys who know the Bible. I've read it. I do the, the you know, annual reading plan every year. I know it. And yet there's still something missing. And what we can start to think, if we're not careful, is that what's lacking, what the issue is, is a discovery issue. I, I, I must need a new verse. I must need a new truth. I must need a new book. And then it will kind of get my life in order. I need to discover something new because what I currently have isn't working. I'm still struggling. I'm still a sinner. I still have whatever it may be. 
And what we need to do is, is pause for a moment and say, wait a minute. This is what I have seen at least. Often the real issue in the matter is not that we lack some knowledge of God's accomplishment or promise. It is rather that we have failed to properly, deeply, wholly embrace the things we already know of Him. The things we already know He has said and done. You with me on that? We've discovered the truths of Christ with our heads, in other words, but they've not yet reached our hearts. And here for me is where the real battle of the Christian life is waged. Here is where, I mean, after the initial discoveries and all this, this is where the real stuff goes on for years and years and years, the fight for faith. Let me give you an example. This is to kind of help you see what I'm talking about here. How many people in this room, and I already know the answer, how many people in this room this past week have gone up and down, probably with a battle of anxiety, some form of anxiety or fear in one way or another? I would say that's probably everybody in this room. There's anxiety, there's fear, some more crippling than others, some more debilitating than others, but all of us experiencing anxiety and fear, maybe kept up one night this last week, maybe found yourself unable to eat, found yourself unable to concentrate on the person in front of you because you're worried about whatever was going down at work or whatever may, you know, the people are talking about in the neighborhood or whatever it might be, there's anxiety and there's fear. And now here's what I want to ask. Is this a knowledge issue? for most of us do we need to know something about God and what he said who he is who he will be for us do we do, is it a knowledge issue in those moments of anxiety and fear my wager is that for most of us it's not and I know I'm being too simplistic but what we really need more than anything is this nurture piece we need, sure, to go back to those verses we already know fine and then to, to labor to trust and believe them to fight there. We probably already know what the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Uh, this is where the author writes, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. He will not leave me. He will not forsake me. He is always here. He is my helper. Therefore, the Christian life should be one without any fear. And yet, there it is. You know the verse. You've heard sermons on the verse. Perhaps you've memorized the verse. And yet it hasn't penetrated the heart or we wander from it. We need to bring it in deeper. We need to pray with Jesus about it. We need to talk to Him about what's going on. It's not a knowledge, a discovery issue at that point. It's how do I get the stuff from my head into my heart? God, I'm sorry for the ways that I've been trying to find security in these other things. I'm running around. No wonder my peace is not there. I'm finding it in what people are saying. And when they're saying good things, I feel good. No wonder I'm not finding peace. I'm finding it in money. And when the, when the bank account is full, I feel good. But when it's gone, I feel scared. No one, and this is the deep stuff. You see? The verse just kind of is a gateway. You get the stuff in your head and you go, wow, I'm not 
believe in this. Help me with my unbelief. I know it to be true. I want to know it to be true. That's where I think a lot of us are. There's this breakdown between what we know and what we believe. There's often an an awfully large gap between our heads and our hearts. And this nurture piece I'm talking about here attempts to bridge that gap through repentance, faith, prayer. Engaging with Jesus personally. And we can't skip that. We're not machines that you can just input a little bit of data and then it changes our lives. No, there's this wrestling this putting to death of the old man and putting on of the new man that we looked at last time, that's a process and a battle. And we need the Spirit's help and we cry and we ask. And we need, as we'll see, to do this with each other. We need to be in this fight together. Now, um, discovering, nurturing, now applying Christ, applying Christ. Applying Christ looks to move all of this out into our lives. Um, What we know, if we've read our Bibles, is that true and vibrant faith in one's heart leads to love and obedience in one's life. It never just stops here. It's never this nice moment with me and Jesus on the couch in the morning and then I go off to work, cuss out my co-workers, flip off the people who are... Did I actually just do that? I hope I didn't. I I had all five hands up there. Sorry, I, God forgive me. See, I gotta, uh, you know, flip off the, the people that are in rush hour traffic that cut you off. You know, there's a disconnect, in other words, between the warm, happy, fuzzy moments with Jesus on the couch and how you're living out on the streets. And that's not supposed to be the case. Discovering Him with our head, nurturing those realities in our hearts is supposed to make its way out our hands into our lives. It should affect, it should influence, it should change. If I truly believe that God is my ever-present helper, like Hebrews 13 says, then I will not be afraid. If I do the work in the morning to wrestle for faith in that, ask God for help with that, then I will walk out into the day unafraid. Now, it's a constant battle. But you at least move in that direction, and there will be peace there in those moments, and you will find yourself able, perhaps, to love another person instead of being consumed with your own needs, the self-concern, the self-pity, the, the struggles with what's going on. We can't love if we're not engaged with Him in that way. And so, But if we are, if the nurture thing is going on, it's going to have effect. It's going to change our lives. Or the way that Jesus puts it in John 15, 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, discover nurture, he it is that bears much fruit. There will be stuff that starts coming out of your lives. Fruit will be hanging from the branches of your life. So we're not satisfied to only know Christ with our heads. Um, That would be mere intellectualism. Nor are we satisfied when once his truths have reached our hearts. That would be kind of an empty sentimentalism. Feels good. It's nice. Comforts me. No, the full range of religious motion is to move from our head through our heart to our hands. That's what discover, nurture, and apply means. And this is where I say again, uh, the calling these things DNA groups keeps before us the end goal and the steps to get there. Because what was the end goal? That it would start to come out of my life. That people would see in me the Father's eyes. 
my father's hands, my father's feet. That I would look like my dad. I would look like my Savior. Discipleship has as its end renewal into Christ and God's image. We start to look like the one we're following. You've probably heard this before, but grace, the point of grace is not to nullify the law or to render it uh, meaningless. The point of grace is actually to help us fulfill it. It's to transform us. The law is nothing but a transcription of God's holy character. Do not steal, do not lie. We don't steal because He's a giver, not a stealer. We don't lie because He speaks truth, not lies. All of those things are just a transcription of our Father's character. Grace doesn't nullify and mean now we no longer need to live holy and righteous. Grace actually puts us on new footing in Christ so that we can live the way we were designed to live. Namely, in fulfillment of that law, holy, pure, perfect, righteous. So discipleship to Jesus is the means to that end of conformity in God's image, renewal in His image. Now, I told you that I wanted to root, kind of ground this in Jesus' own model uh, for disciple making. So let me quickly show you how Discover, Nurture, Apply worked out for Him. And I was like, I could do so much more with this than I will. But what is His initial call to the disciples when he's asking them, you know, when he's, when he's getting this whole thing started, what is his initial call other than really a call to discover? To come and discover who he is and, and, and uh, what he's all about. The, the call is, is follow me. Right? Or you remember even the guys that John the Baptist is funneling his disciples Jesus' way now and they're kind of behind him and they're asking some questions like, where do you live and what's that all about? And what does he say to them? He says, come and see. In other words, come, see, discover, watch. You will learn things about me as you follow behind me. It's the call to discover. The, the entry point of discipleship is the, the get out, you know, get your gear on because you're going on an expedition of discovery. Get your boots, get your walking stick because we're following behind and we're watching and we're going to be amazed at who this person is and what he's come to do. Discover is where it begins. But then as the disciples come to discover many things about him, what we notice is that Jesus is not satisfied with letting it all remain intellectual and external. He attempts to drive it towards their hearts. For this, you might think of the question he pushes on his disciples in Luke 9.20. So, here's what we have. We're now nine chapters into this thing. They've been following for a while. They have seen a lot of Jesus' work. They've heard a lot of his teaching. All the town is talking about him all around. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? What is his deal? And, And Jesus knows his disciples have seen these sorts of things. The miracles, the power, the wisdom, all of that. And he says, listen, I'm not so much interested in what everyone else is saying about me out there. Here's the question I want you to answer. Luke 9, 20. But who do you say that I am? This is the move from head to heart. You see, we could, before I came to Christ, I realized that if he didn't throw my plans and my idols and my face in the mud and just break me down, I could have been discovering forever. Oh, I was interested. I was in Bible studies and I was doing all sorts of stuff. But he wanted my heart. Like, oh, I don't know if I have enough information to really make this decision, you know, all this. And He looks here and he says, listen, you've seen enough. What do you think? What's your heart going to do with what you've seen? 
Who am I to you? Are you going to rest in me? Trust me? Or is it still out here somewhere? Just up here in your head. Ooh, this is some interesting stuff. This is kind of entertaining. I'm happy to be along for the ride. He's saying, no, who am I to you? Let's get into your heart. And he'll do that a thousand different ways. That's great that you've learned and seen these things. But now are you resting, trusting, believing, engaging with me? Because that's what discipleship is. That's the call to nurture. Discover, nurture. But as we follow along with the disciples, we recognize that even a profession of faith isn't enough. Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And that is the right answer. It's good. And Jesus will continue to fill that out. But Jesus doesn't stop at, well done, great, my work here is finished. No, that's just the beginning. The embrace from the heart of Jesus is really just the beginning of what he wants to do in our lives. The embrace of the things we've discovered is just the beginning. He wants that it's going to affect change in the inner man and start to work out into our lives. And so what we see with Jesus and the trajectory he's on with these disciples is that by the end of John's gospel, what does he turn to them and say? John 20, 21. He says this, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Did you hear that? This is the, this is kind of the end goal of following me. That as the Father sent me, or in other words, as I look, so I want now you to look. As the Father sent me, so now I am sending you. You just watched my life. You watched the way I talked to widows, the way that I cared for the broken, the poor, the outcast. You heard my wisdom as I taught, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount or whatever it was. Now I want you to go and do likewise. I should have added the two. You watched me die and give my life in love for sinners. I want you to go and do likewise. Lay your life down in love for the lost and the broken. You see, discover, nurture, apply. Discipleship has as its end conformity to Christ's and God's image. We should start to look like the one that we are following. Okay, those are those three key words. That was where I was going to spend the majority of our time here this morning. I want to continue, though, to break down the rest of that definition, if you'll permit me. Um, Going back to the definition, let me just kind of take it again bit by bit. DNA groups are smaller groups. Smaller groups. I'm going to stop there. Um, DNA groups, for the most part, will be intentionally kept small. Uh, maybe two to four, maybe at times a little bigger. But the goal uh, in, in discipleship or in these groups is to some degree constraining the way that we want to handle this. Why small groups? Small groups uh, allow for us to kind of bring Christ in at the molecular DNA type level, if you will. Uh, right now, I can't have a meaningful conversation with all of you by any stretch about how Jesus' words are affecting you, where you're wrestling with repentance and faith, what that will look like walking out into your life this week. I can't talk to you about that right now. Now, I hope a few of you may come up afterwards and we'll chat and we'll pray. But I know this context is not conducive to that sort of work, but a DNA group context is let's create space where we can get real. And some of you are like, 
I like to kind of hide. I like to kind of, you know, put on my Sunday best and look like I'm, you know, I look good, but I don't want to get into the mess. Well, DNA Groups is calling us to get into the mess with each other behind Jesus who loves us, saved us, and is renewing us. And in order to really get there, you've got to be in smaller groups where there's time to chat about it. There's time to get real. There's time to ask those questions and search for those verses that really light up what you're dealing with, where you're at. Now, Jesus, uh, again, is our model at this point. Certainly, he ministered to large crowds at times. Luke six seventeen to 19 talks about this large crowd of disciples that were following him. So there's these large crowds of disciples. But then we know as well that from that large crowd of disciples, he selected 12, right? He said, okay, now these 12, I kind of want to do something a little bit more with. So he narrows down the size of the group because he realizes to effectively, you know, be involved in discipleship type relationships, there has to be uh, a smaller groups. There needs to be more intimate conversation and space. Sorry, I'm wondering what's going on. Is everything good? Okay. A diaper change. This is it, right now. Good job, guys. You're doing the work, making disciples. Um, okay, let me get back in here. I got, I got diapers on my mind. Where, where was it? Oh, smaller. Okay, so Jesus is, is going after twelve, right? But then, if we follow along with him, we see him do even more, kind of narrowing, don't we? You notice, if you've read the Gospels carefully in Jesus' disciple-making ministry, and you watch it, you see that he goes from the large masses of disciples to the twelve, down to a special relationship that he pursues with the three. Peter, James, and John. We see this in places like Luke 8, 51, or 9, 28, where uh, 9, 28 is like the Mount of Transfiguration, where he specifically singles out those three and says, come with me. Or, or the one in chapter 8 there is when... Um, that ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, he, he, his kid is sick and then uh, she dies and, and Jesus is like, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to take with me Peter, James, and John. You start to see this here. What is he doing? He's, he's getting them into intimate space where he can engage them at perhaps an even deeper level than even the other 12. Because Jesus knows, I think, that if he was to get into his disciples' hearts and see real fruit in their lives, he would have to get them into smaller, more intimate contexts. And it's going to be the same with us, I think. And so if all of our Christian life is kind of this larger group context where we can effectively hide, we don't know anyone else that well, and no one else knows us very well, I will tell you right now, you will not start to see the sort of fruit that you're desiring or that Jesus desires for you in your Christian life. You will not. This is his model for disciple making, and it involves getting real and messy. Anyone in here a mess? Thank you. Join the crowd. Join the good, you're in good company. All right? That's where we are. We do all of our dirty work in the light of the cross, where we know, man, he loves us. Is there stuff to repent of? Yes. But there are promises even greater than anything I could ever have to repent of or confess. It says, man, he has, he has paid it in full. He's renewing us, committed to us. What he's begun, he will bring to completion. We can rest in this. We can get messy in this. But we need smaller contexts to do it, I think. So, back to our definition. DNA groups are smaller groups of now committed people who meet on a consistent basis. 
So I want to highlight those two words, committed and consistent, for a moment. We need to face here the simple fact that unless the small group of people is committed to and consistent with one another, little growth can take place. If I shared my deepest struggles with Johnny on Tuesday, but then next month when I meet, I, I, I'm not meeting with Johnny anymore, but I kind of want to go hang out with this person, and then I jump into that group because they're doing something fun, and I, I'm all over it. Well, then I'll tell you, there's not going to be that ongoing sort of development and following behind Jesus together with people who know you meaningfully are praying for you, holding you accountable, encouraging you via text or whatever it may be through the week. We need that. Commitment and consistency are important. And without them, uh, we also will see little growth, I think. Uh, We see this in Jesus' ministry. Now, I'll just come right out and say it straight up here. This is way more severe than anything a DNA group would ever be. But we watch this principle at play in Jesus' own disciple-making ministry. Do you remember those who tried to kind of shuffle their feet or weren't so sure they wanted to go all in but were maybe interested? Do you remember what he says to them? He says, no one who puts hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's Luke 9.62. In other words, you've got to be all in or this is not going to work. You've got to be ready to go the distance with me or we can't even get this thing started. That's the principle. And we see the opposite at play in his disciples that do follow after him. You remember, he says, listen, come follow me. And we watch us. It just seems almost like, almost like magic. We're like, oh, they just immediately kind of sense the majesty of the one calling them. They drop their nets. They leave whatever. And they're gone. They're go- we don't know who he is quite yet. We don't know exactly what he's come to do. But we just know we got to go. we got to go. And we're all in. Now again, um, We're not calling for commitment and consistency at that level by any stretch to a DNA group or something like it. But the same sort of principle applies. If our whole Christian life is kind of touch and go with various people and seasons that kind of make it, it's comfortable for us, it's good for us. Oh, okay. Oh, I kind of want to jump there, jump there. If we're doing that sort of a thing, or maybe we're not even engaged at all. Maybe even we barely make it to Sundays, the larger gatherings. I'm telling you. You're not going to see this sort of growth and grace and godliness and conformity to Christ's image that you want and that He wants for you. Because this is where it comes from and it does require... What's the word, what's the word, yeah, English word there built into our word disciple? Discipline, right? You see it. We're going to be instructed. We're going to follow. We want to, we're going to be disciplined. It's, it, it's not opposed to grace. So it's important that we be committed and consistent in one degree or another. Now, let me spend a little bit more time with you on this next little part. Um, I want to highlight the word together for you. DNA groups are smaller groups of committed people who meet on a consistent basis to discover, nurture, and apply Christ together. Together. Now, with this word together, I have something quite important in mind. Um, and I, forgive me if I go soapbox for a moment, but my sense is that uh, too often what we see when it comes to this idea of discipleship, and perhaps you've experienced this yourself, um, often what we have is this sort of top-down, one-direction, one-way sort of approach to it. Meaning, I am here with all the answers. My name is Nick. Sit down. I am here with all the answers to make you my disciple. 
I am here uh, on a different plane to pour into you, to instruct you, to teach you. There's this top-down, one-way sort of approach. Now, I don't want to downplay the reality that uh, with discipleship, certainly there are going to be more mature believers pouring into newer, younger, immature believers, and that is an important dynamic. But, but, I think... To say that this is merely a one-directional process is a gross oversimplification and even a dangerous reduction of what Jesus intended by what making disciples for us would be. I think far better than the me-over-you model of discipleship is the me-with-you model. The idea here isn't so much, hey, listen, I'm off in front, follow me if you can. Woo! but I'm right here with you. You want to follow Jesus with me? We're co-travelers behind Calvary's King. We're in this discipleship thing together. I'm not making you my disciple. I'm inviting you to follow me as Jesus' disciple. God forbid I make disciples of Nick Weber. But man, may I invite you to come and be a disciple with me of Jesus. Now, what this means, I think, is that every member of a given DNA group should be operating within what I call the three relational dimensions of discipleship. Let me bring this out for you. Three relational dimensions that I would always want to be at work in discipleship type relationships. They are leaning, learning, and leading. Did you catch that? Leaning, learning, and leading. Let me break that down for you. By leaning, I simply am implying that no Christian is an island. I don't care how mature you are. I don't care how many decades you've been a believer. If you think you've got this thing on your own and you're making disciples and you don't need to lean in on them, you have left the biblical model. You've left it. What we see, I mean, even the great Apostle Paul, I mean, if, if you're new to the Bible and you don't know who Paul is, he is the, the biggest stud in the Scriptures apart from Jesus, right? He, he's, you can't hurt this man. He's getting stoned and he gets back up and walks back into the city and is preaching again. You know, to these people, it seems like he's invincible. You go, man, if there was ever a guy who didn't need to lean in on anyone else because you just had him and Jesus, it would be Paul. But that's not what we see him do. All over the the epistles that he writes, we see him leaning in. Romans 15, 30 to 32 is an example where he says this to these new disciples, these Gentile disciples who would be so easy to go, you don't know anything. I'm not going to let you pray for me. I don't want to see you. Let me tell you what to think. This is what he says to them. I appeal to you, brothers. By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. He's saying, if you didn't catch that in all of his flowery language, he's saying, pray for me. Please, pray for me to God that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Did you catch that? He's saying at the front end of this, please pray for me. And one of the things I want you to do is pray for me that I'd be delivered from the stuff here. So that I can get to you and be what? Refreshed by you. 
I need your fellowship. I'm running on empty out here. Yes, I'm the great Apostle Paul. Whoop-dee, I am a disciple of Jesus too, and I need other disciples running with me, pouring into me. I need to lean in. There's leaning involved. If there was ever a, a, a man, other, other than Christ, obviously, if there was ever a man who could kind of say, I don't need you, it would be Paul in it. Here he is. Please, pray, please. I've got to get to you so I could be refreshed. He may be their father in the faith, but he still calls them brothers and sisters in Christ. Leaning. Now, learning. Uh, By learning, what I mean to say here is that we understand from the scriptures that every Christian, however mature in the faith, still has much to learn. Others have knowledge, experiences, gifts that we don't. The moment we think we have nothing to learn from another is the moment we actually prove ourselves to be a fool. That's the biblical irony. Did you catch that? The moment you think that the guy or girl sitting across the table from you has nothing to teach you is the moment you prove yourself to be the fool, not wise. I'm so wise, I don't need you. You're actually the fool in those moments. We need each other more than we realize and we can learn from one another more than we realize. Young and old, new to the faith, you know, mature in the faith. So much. You, you often hear some of these dynamics in play, right? Where, like, and I've seen this play out even in my own ministry and life, where, you know, okay, the older believers, man, yes, they bring a seasoned sort of approach to ministry and, and, and theology, and, and they have the nuances involved in following Jesus for so many years and all these things. But then you've got the younger guys. What can happen sometimes with the older is they grow cold and used to it and stagnant. And you've got the younger guys where it's new, where the, the new believers are going, man, what is this all about? This is incredible. I can't believe Jesus would do this for me. i got to go tell others about this. And suddenly the old guys are learning things from the new guys. And certainly the new guys are learning things from the old guys. But just, that's what it's about. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. There's leaning in and these discipleship, disciple-making, following Jesus together sort of relationships. And there's learning from each other. Regardless of how many years or not you've been following Christ. I think I can learn things even from unbelievers, right? I want to learn from them. I want to hear from their heart and, and get a sense of what, what the, being created in the image of God and living in this broken world is like for them. Paul would put it this way in 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. You think you're wise, you're a fool. The first step to wisdom is realizing you're a fool and you can learn from everybody else. Leaning, learning, now leading. By leading, of course, I have the other side of this whole thing in mind. Every Christian, however new in the faith, has something to offer. Paul would say it's often a part upon the parts of the body. You remember this in 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 25. It's often the parts of the body that we would be prone to despise that we would be prone to overlook that God actually bestows a special honor. I mean, that's amazing. And what God is trying to get at is this right here, that there is no one in the kingdom of God who is kind of this second-rate bit player behind the scenes. I guess I'll just kind of sweep the floor and that's it. No, you all have gifts and things to bring to the table. The Great Commission applies to you. It's not like, hey, that's for the superstars and I'll be over here. You know, cheering them on from the stands. And I said, get in the game. There are things that you have to offer as well. And sometimes it's those that feel they have the least that God is saying, no, I'm giving you the most. 
get in and, and use what you have for me. So in every DNA group, there should be these three dimensions. Uh, firing, leaning, learning, and leading. If I could put this last one a little bit uh, more bluntly for us, to kind of bring it all together. If you're not willing to lean in on or learn from the other members of your DNA group, you are you're, you're not ready to lead. Did, did you hear me? Sometimes we think leading, we're ready to lead when we no longer need to lean in, when we no longer have anything to learn. Then we're ready to lead. I'm telling you, if you are not ready to lean in on the people that you are engaging with and learn from them, you are not ready to lead them. We see something of this even in Christ's own disciple-making ministry, I think. Um, Though I'll say in a moment, I mean, it's obviously different for Jesus because he happens to be God in the flesh. But regardless, we see him leaning in, do we not? I mean, what is happening there in Gethsemane? As he says, listen, I want you to stay here, stay awake with me and pray. (laughs) What is he doing there? (laughs) But letting them in on his suffering, letting them in on his needs and his struggles. Right? Or we read back in Luke 8, I think it was, where he's actually, uh, the means of provision for him came from these ladies that were following with him. And out of their means, they provided. He was not above. Listen, I'm the son of God. I can turn those stones to bread right now. Thank you. Put your money away, lady. No, he leaned in. I, I, I have need. I, I need that sort of refreshment as well. And, and I, I, he's pressing into those relationships. And as far as learning goes, okay, fine, yes, he is the sum total of all wisdom, right? That's what uh, Paul says in Colossians 2.3, in him are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and yet we don't see him speaking over everyone. Oh, okay, 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 now let me have the, the word here. Let me push it and tell you what it's really all about. We see him listening. We see him holding his wisdom with humility, with meekness. And when he does speak, he speaks just the right words in the right way at the right time. Certainly he leads, but he leads from down low. That's what disciple making is all about. Now, again, for Jesus it's different. He could simply say, follow me, and that's enough. Follow me, that's it. Okay, and we are, we are behind him. But for us, ours is to say, follow him with me. And I know Paul the Apostle says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But that's that last piece that's so important. He's essentially saying what I'm saying here. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow Jesus with me. That's it. We're co-travelers behind Calvary's King. We're in this discipleship thing together. That's what it means. Now, this is the last bit of the definition, and this is the last thing I'm going to look at with us here this morning. DNA groups are smaller groups of committed people who meet on a consistent basis to discover, nurture, and apply Christ together until He is all in all. Until He is all in all. Now, this last phrase really sets up kind of the vast expanse that discipleship should really take. In our lives. Uh, oftentimes, I'm, I think I'm on to something, but I'm not sure. Certainly, I did this myself as I was following behind Jesus, and especially in the early years. I, I had this kind of segregated understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. 
In other words, there were um, certain things that uh, Jesus had to say about, you know, the spiritual sort of stuff and the Bible studies and the ministry, but then there were other things that were just kind of the more uh, worldly, secular, whatever sort of things that I didn't really know how the gospel even applied or if Jesus even really cared about it like my work or my whatever it was. And so for me, uh, I saw this sort of divide happening. And I think for a lot of us, we have a, a divide in one way or another. A lot of us may understand, okay, the gospel is what forgives me of my past sins and deals with that spiritual stuff called sin and, 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 and the blood of Christ on the altar. And it secures me for the future when I need to stand before God and enter into the new heavens and new earth. But how the gospel touches me here and now Come again? How does it influence the way that I live my everyday life? How does it touch moment by moment the things that I am doing? Oh sure, we'll talk about the gospel and stuff on Sunday mornings when we kind of rise in the clouds together. But on Monday when I have to hit the ground running, I have no idea what to do with it. And so we let our discipleship to Jesus be these sort of things where, okay, we pray, we have a, a, a little Bible study and a meeting over coffee, and then we go. And we, that, was our, that was our discipleship time. And we miss the holistic thing that it is to be a disciple, that He wants to get into every aspect of your lives and transform it. That the gospel truly touches everything that we touch. Here is where perhaps we remember that God's redemption is coextensive with His creation. And I know none of you probably know what I'm talking about. But this is that idea in Romans 8, where Paul would say, listen, all of creation is groaning, looking in on the children of God, because redemption is coming, and it's going to not just... Jesus didn't just die for my soul and my spiritual stuff. He died, he's going to raise my body... And He's going to ultimately transform, redeem this world. And what that means is that His redemption touches everything. Not just your Sunday mornings, but every minute in between when we gather. Every aspect of your lives, gospel infused. Grace is there. Jesus wants to be there making disciples in that moment with you. Conforming you into His image in that place. I think this is the sort of thing that Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What that means is that there is no segregation. There is nothing outside the bounds of Christ's kingdom. There is nothing uh, to, to, to physical, to menial, to mundane, to everyday, to commonplace that Jesus doesn't want to get his hands on it and transform it. Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, fill that out. You can do it for the glory of God. Christ wants to get a hold of it. Change the way you handle it. And so DNA group members get into each other's lives and they ask, what does this all that Paul speaks of here look like for us? If he says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, what does that all look like for me? How can Christ be glorified when I'm working in a cubicle or changing a diaper? How does the gospel change the way you sit in rush hour traffic? Or the way you walk around your neighborhood and and say hi to a few neighbors after 
dinner? How does it touch the way you drink a cup of warm coffee on a cold morning or drink a glass of good wine in the evening? Discipleship to Jesus should touch and transform every part of our lives and DNA groups kind of get together and say, what does that actually look like? I want Christ to be all in all. I want to do whatever I do for His glory. Now, Christ's disciple-making ministry again models this for us, and this is really where I'll, I'll leave us. This is why His ministry takes the shape that it does. He doesn't say to His disciples, Hey, I have a few books for you to read. He doesn't say, Hey, I have a few meetings I need you to attend. No, He says, Hey, I have a new life that I want you to, to, to start to live into. I want you to follow me and watch. Not just as I preach in the synagogue. Not just as we pray and do ministry and spiritual stuff. I want you to watch how I eat bread and who I eat it with. I want you to watch how I drink wine and who I drink it with. I want you to watch how I sleep under the stars and what it looks like. How I grieve in the face of loss. How I laugh at funny jokes. How I... I want you to see, in other words, the image of God in all of life. Because we are, we are being made new in Christ. A new creation, new humanity. That's what we are walking into when we follow behind Jesus. Conformity to His image touches every part of your being and every aspect of your life. And Jesus shows us that He wants... He, discipleship is not satisfied until He is all in all. Let me leave you with this. I know that there are many questions about what DNA groups mean, function, all that sort of stuff. How is this going to happen? How do I get involved? All that we'll tackle probably after the family service Sunday. Next week I'll do something else. Um, but for now, I just simply want to leave you with the question. Are, are you a disciple busy making disciples? Are you engaged in this sort of thing with others? Are you a part of small groups where you know one another meaningfully and you're doing this DNA type stuff? You maybe never would have called it that, but you're after that. If you are, awesome. Keep it up. If you're not, why not? What's going on? Because this is the ultimate aim of your salvation. Jesus wants to give you that sort of freedom that comes from being transformed in His image. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word to us. Thank you that no person is beyond the bounds of your grace. Thank you that you make disciples of some of the lowest of the low as far as the world is concerned. In fact, those are the people you seem to go to first. And God, so we know we're in good company as we look at ourselves and go, Wow, who, me? How? I don't understand. But Jesus, you're right here with us and we are in this thing together. And I pray that in this church you would help us to be disciples who are busy making disciples of others. Engaging one another meaningfully. Pursuing behind you together. And growing more and more in your likeness. God, we want to be that way. Would you help us? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.